Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Everyone seemed to know the score, they'd seen it all before, they just knew, they were so sure that England were going to throw it away, they were going to blow it away, but as it turns out, England can play, England are through to a first ever major tournament final since 1966. I am Jake from What If Football, this is the Euro Daily Podcast episode 32, available on Acast, Amazon, Apple, Spotify. If you're feeling generous and you join the show, you can give us a like, subscribe, five-star review as well to help us out a little bit. We'll be on that platform three days a week after the Euros. Likewise with Patreon, that is patreon.com forward slash whatifootball, where you can find the Euro Daily podcast and after the Euros for the price of a small pint, £3 a month, monthly donation. You can get seven days a week content, that being contemporary podcasts, historical podcasts and video gaming content. Let's get stuck into today's show, shall we? England 2, Denmark 1. 1968, Dragan Zajic scored in a 1-0 win for Yugoslavia in Euro 1968 semi-final against England. Italy go on to win the tournament. 1990, Stuart Pearce and Chris Waddle miss penalties as Germany, West Germany, beat England and then go on to win the World Cup. 1996, Gareth Southgate misses a penalty. Germany win the semi-final. Germany win the European Championships. 2018, Croatia overturn a Trippier free kick in extra time. Ivan Perisic and Mario Mandzukic march on to the final, not England. But finally, after four occasions, England finally reach a tournament final. Falling behind to a free kick as Croatia did three years ago, and overcome a Danish team who acquitted themselves magnificently well throughout the tournament and in this game. And finally, England are in a major tournament final. It still hasn't sunk in. We have waited eternally for this, a lot of us. And it all began with 
simple tactical tweak. Bukayo Saka coming in for Jadon Sancho. Denmark, as ever, were unchanged. There were a lot of talk about England perhaps matching up Denmark's system in a 3-4-3. But Southgate stuck to his gun, stuck to the 4-3-3, stuck to the 4-2-3-1. What did Denmark produce? Let's start with Denmark, shall we, to make it nice and balanced. Well, there was a period in the middle of the first half where I think they were... Definitely had their tails up, they were almost dominating the ball, they were winning the midfield battle and were providing a lot of the chances in the game. Obviously the free kick goal comes through Damsgaard on the half hour mark, which um, is the first <laughs> first tournament free kick since Kieran Trippier against Croatia. And um, Pickford, these question marks over him... Um, it's slightly central. It's well hit though, so perhaps you can't lay. I'm not goalkeeping expert by any means, and uh, this had just come just after John Pickford had beaten Gordon Banks as minutes without conceding a goal in an England shirt. Um, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt in terms of Pickford. Really, it was well hit, and Damsgaard, as we know, he'd given England a warning sign before that. We uh, he got through and curled on it. It, it was one of those where you thought, oh. It, it looks close on the camera angle, uh, the broadcast angle, but it probably skewed miles wide. But when you've seen the uh, reverse angle replay, it was uh, it was as close, if not closer, than what it looked for from the first angle. So he was getting into these pockets that we know is incredibly dangerous in that he's been dangerous in the entire tournament and gets his uh, second goal with that free kick, of course. England still haven't conceded in open play, so that's, that's a positive. <laughs> but still, we um, a lot of the talk was going into the game was, can England... Can England recover if they go a goal down? They've not conceded a goal in this tournament, but of course the players in the teams have been in games where they've conceded goals before. So it's obviously the semi-final of a European Championship. You might have wanted in an ideal world to have gone down before and been tested before such a big occasion because in a semi-final, a lot of these players haven't been in that pressure situation. Obviously for clubs, it's a bit different getting to a Champions League semi-final, etc., which plenty of these players have, you know, Mason Mount in there, Jordan Henderson, and a lot more, of course. So, I think the mesh of systems helped Denmark a lot in this um, in this first half. When they had, when they were fresh legs, when Jakim Myler could get forward, he wasn't getting forward as much as perhaps that Denmark would want. But when Denmark got their pleasure, it was from out wide. Damsgaard obviously linking up in the uh, half spaces. Struggle Larsen, I don't think got forward as much as he possibly should. Hoiberg was more drifting out to the right-hand side to create, and he, he, Koiberg's had a fantastic tournament. He's got a new side to him, I think, this creative side, this creative spark that he's got. He's got as many assists as Luke Shaw, for example, not three, which is joint second, now behind, I think it's still Steven Zuber on four. And um, they, they were slightly on the uh, slightly on the precipice like England were in the first sort of knockings of the game in terms of attacking, really. They were great on the counter as the game wore on and uh, England levelled it up. They were looking definitely more for the counter-attacks, bringing those uh, counters, which with Brathwaite, who's got some pace about him, the wide men, Myler and Strigalarsen, who've got pace as well. Damsgaard can obviously pick a pass out. Dahlberg's quite swift on his feet as well. That was a, a definite avenue, but they were always... Final ball, it was just lacking potentially in, as we get into the second half and extra time. That was, final ball's probably lacking because of fatigue. Let's not forget the uh, they've been to Baku and back. Um, England obviously have only played one game outside of Wembley, that being the quarterfinal. And not even that was in Rome, so they've not had to travel too much 
obviously up until the quarterfinal, Denmark hadn't too, but obviously the last four weeks that they've that Denmark have experienced will be not just physically taxing, but as we know, mentally taxing on them. And I think finally, as we get into the second half here, I think that fatigue started to show. And even then, I don't think they probably deserved to lose in extra time and especially didn't deserve to lose the way they lost it. Um, and I think the substitutions made were quite curious. Damsgaard came off and as soon as he came off, the creativity left as well, really. Poulsen didn't fill that void didn't have the impact that was necessary either. Meanwhile, England substitutions, the postponed them for a little bit because Denmark made a triple substitution with about 25, 20 minutes to go. Southgate just held off, held off a little bit to see what would happen, brought Grealish on and Grealish, I thought, did very well in terms of breaking the game up. And the second half was very bitty and he was winning fouls. That was one of the first things he did in the game was win a foul. It's his trademark, obviously. Kane was doing likewise well. I thought Harry Kane had a a fantastic game and if you have a caption player who grew into the tournament the most Harry Kane is definitely he looked fresher than he'd ever been the entire tournament and um, looking back in terms of defensively were England great did they have to be great I think they did because they, Denmark as we know they're quite direct in their crossing they proved that against Czech Republic both of their goals against Czech Republic in back who came from crosses came from a set piece the first one and um, England definitely needed to be streetwise in the air and Stones and Maguire was superb all game. I don't think Maguire missed a header, Stones likewise. And it's a good um, a good redemption story for Harry Maguire. He got sent off last autumn against um, Denmark off the back of a quite a bad time for him personally. Um, the camp wasn't too great in October. Obviously, this was at the height of coronavirus at the time. Um it's come full circle, I think, after obviously yeah, being jailed in Mykonos, that sending off, it wasn't a great time in his professional, perhaps even personal life. And he's come back full circle, same pitch, same opposition, and he was absolutely immaculate at the back. If he got man of the match, I don't think I'd have had an argument there. Harry Kane gets it probably because of, you know, he gets the goal, the winning goal that sends England to the final. But there's quite a lot of, quite a lot of names who might have deserved it the man of the match for England, Casper uh, Schmeichel as well, could have deserved the man of the match and you'd have had no complaints really on that one. While Kyle Walker saved England with his recovery pace a couple of times and he was, again, fantastic. Luke Shaw, brilliant going forward, brilliant on the overlap and defensively, fantastic as well. Um, England, did they do enough to win the game? I believe so. Um, the pressure came in kind of swaves. They started the game quite well. Halfway through, after the Denmark goal, I mean, instantly tried to reinstate their dominance, lumping on the pressure. The left-hand side was dominant. Um, it has been dominant all tournament, really, for England and even before the tournament. But both goals came from the right-hand side and um, Schmeichel was having to produce a couple of stunning saves. Sterling from point-blank range, he just like, hit his abdomen and he just stood firm and it was a fantastic save from Schmeichel. And... Um, a header from uh, Slabhead, Harry Maguire, clawing it out like his old man, P uh, Peter Schmeichel. It was fantastic. That was one of the saves of the tournament. Absolutely superb how he got down and I managed to get a strong hand on it. And he had a similar save uh, from open play from Harry Kane, again from the right. Um, he's, they were creating the best chances from the right, but they were still, you know, left-hand side was re really the uh, avenue to go down with Sterling and um, later on Grealish and Luke Shaw in the overlap. And Kasper Schmeichel was fantastic. He, pre he prevented 2.9 goals 
last night, which is the most in a single game in the European Championship since records began, which I think is 1980. Meanwhile, John Pickford um, goes to show how little maybe England have been worked. He's prevented only 2.2 up until the quarterfinals. Now, I don't know if that's changed. That uh, record probably will have gone up marginally, but probably still less than Kasper Schmeichel's uh, goal prevention tonight and last night, rather. And Schmeichel was just absolutely fantastic and uh, very harsh. Obviously, a lot of that, that, that figure 2.9 comes down to the penalty as well, where he saved the penalty. And um, by the end of it, I think Denmark, they'd run their race. England were almost playing the waiting game in the second half and extra time. I think they were quite, they weren't too bothered about going to extra time. I was, I was, <laughs> I was bricking it beforehand, bricking it during the game. It wasn't a pleasant experience watching it, <laughs> but uh, you can tell what I watched the replay this morning and we were measured. They were a lot better than what I thought on the first viewing, more composed than I would have ever been watching from home, watching in the stands, etc. But they were they were obviously fantastic. Raheem Sterling as well, another contender for Man of the Match. His runs all night were just fantastic. A, um, he had a warning sign there with the uh, chance that he had from po- point blank range, uh, again, coming from the right, Saka as well, fantastic. He creates the first goal and it's that Sterling run again. It's a Man City goal. It is a Man City goal. Bukayo Saka breaks the uh, offside trap and he uh, plays it into an area where is almost a guaranteed goal, be it Simon Kier or Raheem Sterling bundling it in. Obviously, it comes off Kier's knee, goes into the roof of net England a level within nine minutes. And um, it's just... That's, Raheem Sterling was asked in the, after the first game, have you justified your selection? And Bakayo Saka in there has justified his selection with that run, the superb run. And he's he's been at it all tournaments since he came in against Czech Republic. Absolutely Fantastic performance from Saka. Fantastic performance again from Raheem Sterling and potentially could have had another one at the uh, 121st minute when he burst through the uh, the Danish defence and uh, he's kind of probably won't win the uh, golden boot now, unfortunately, from Raheem Sterling, but he's had a fan. He's definitely in contention for player of the tournament for me anyway. England always... A bit like Denmark in the first half, they were always one touch, one pass, one final ball away from uh, connecting. Almost, uh, you had Jack Grealish with a decent chance in extra time, I think it was. And um, the pressure from England was getting far too much from set pieces, from chances. And it, it was only a matter of time. Watching the game back, obviously, I didn't think this at the time. I always thought Denmark were a bit, um, were going to be dangerous on the counter. That was their game. It was it was kind of enforced that that was their game because they were just so tired by the end of it that um, they had to sit off because they couldn't run any longer. And England, obviously, it is they were lucky to get the penalty. There were two balls on the pitch for one. That was one of my first things that I saw and I thought I was thinking, oh, they're going to overturn this here because there's two balls on the pitch. I'm not sure if VAR can overturn that, if they even saw it, if they're even concentrated on the wide-angle view or just the replays. It is a soft penalty decision. Um, the sort of thing that if the referee didn't give it, it's not going to be overturned. But there was a minimal contact. He's brushed twice, and and is it enough to go down? Is it enough to win a penalty? Um, probably not. Um, but from a biased English standpoint, you've got to sit back and say, so what? That's the type of look you need to get. You're talking about the look for Thomas Muller missing a, missing that one-on-one chance in the last 16. Here's another slice of luck here, winning a penalty. It's yeah, it's soft. It is soft. Um, 
But did England deserve to win? Yeah, they did. Um, Schmeichel again, extremely unfortunate with the penalty save. It's one of Harry Kane's poorest penalties that I've ever seen, really. It's usually arrowed into the corner, a bit of fatigue maybe. Uh, I did say he had a, it was fresh, but by that point, 105, 104 minutes he took that penalty at. Um, he's got to be a bit shattered after all that, obviously carrying his club team for the entire season, in an essence carrying England as well. But obviously he's in the exact position to mop up the rebound and in essence on the face of it really looking over they kind of scabbed that win it was a bit of luck from the penalty penalty spot but that's the sort of thing you win international tournaments with isn't it really I mean look at um, Portugal won one game in 90 minutes in 2016 Italy didn't win a game until the final group match of the second phase in 1982 so you you don't have to be you know, Man City over a 38-game period, immaculate to win a to win a international tournament. Do you? It's, there's that little bits of luck that sprinkled in and amongst. And England got a second stroke of luck here in the uh, tournament, really. You could argue that Denmark's free kick was soft, probably not as soft as the penalty decision. Admittedly, uh, Sharon Christensen brings him down. Um, would that have been given in the box? It's Again, it's one of those where if the referee doesn't see it and VAR has a check they won't overturn it so it's it's one of them where it, fairly similar probably a bit more contact by uh, Sharon Christensen there and obviously the, the score from the resulting free kick you can't have any complaints about that really obviously if England had lost obviously there would have been tons of complaints wouldn't they but uh, there we go um, obviously after the goal England reverted to a 3-4-3 immediately some saying that Jack Grealish being subbed off was harsh um, in the face of it, he, he played 35 minutes and that's a sub-appearance, isn't it, traditionally? Um, and I think this showed a maturity, the backup plan, the you know plan B for when, obviously now they'd already identified that Denmark were flagging and if they sat back, Denmark come on to them and then obviously as, a sec- as his extra time wore on in the second period, it was a matter of keeping the ball, keeping the ball and that sort of thing... It, Definitely wasn't there for 2018, and that shows how far Southgate, how far the team has gone since that semi-final against Croatia. Now, can England win it? Of course they can. The worries were uh, pre-match. If they, what, what would happen if they went a goal behind? They've gone a goal behind, and they've come back now. What? And I think the, the there is a tendency on social media from rival fans, or even from ourselves introspectively, to think. Well, are we that good? We've had a good run to the final. We've had a kinder run to the final than, let's say, Italy. We've faced Austria, Belgium and Spain. We've only faced Germany. And people were lamenting, oh, it was, it was an out-of-form Germany. They're not a big team. But we've hurt, jumped the hurdle of penalties in 2018. And then you get thrown back that it wasn't a hard run to the final. Then you beat a big team and then you get lamented because they aren't in form. Now, you beat a informed Denmark team who probably who definitely provided a uh, sterner test than Germany. And um, you get lamented that it wasn't a it wasn't a hard enough route to the final. And um, regardless, if England win on Sunday, which is not beyond the realms of possibility, is it? It'll just be, it'll just move on to the next one. Now you need to win a major tournament away from home. Because obviously 1966, that was in England. 2021 also in England and at what point have these players uh, the fans earned the right to celebrate and be happy for a an England team and an England team to be proud of without any outside noise that they quote unquote haven't deserved it I'd say now I'd say 
2018, the flickerings, the beginnings of a team that the end game is this. And maybe the end game is 2022 England DNA that was announced in 2014, um, putting up a counter to count down to the 2022 World Cup ahead of schedule. I'm, Dutch, I'm not entirely sure that England would have won this if it was last year. Obviously, it's helped with uh, a number of players coming back. John Henderson is um, fit. John Stones wouldn't have made the team in uh, 2020. Luke Shaw probably wouldn't have. And um, there's tons, tons of players that wouldn't have. Phil Foden wouldn't have been in the running. Bakayo Saka wouldn't have been in the running. They've been integral, really. Jack Grealish probably wouldn't have been in the running either if we cast our minds back to how he was selected first off. Calvin Phillips wouldn't have been selected because he was playing in the championship at the time. So all these things um, count towards another bit of luck, really, for England in the tournament being postponed. And they've matured incredibly. The staff behind the scenes have matured incredibly when have England ever been able to just flexibly change from a from a four three three to a three four three in game? That's never happened. They might have done it, you know, from one game to the next. We saw Terry Venables do a move to a three five two, didn't we, in nineteen ninety six? Seeing Bobby Robson after the first two games in nineteen ninety move to a, a three at the back as well, and obviously that ended quite well. But to do it in game, that's never happened and that makes us sound very tactically regressed, but that's the point. That's how much we've been putting this sort of maturation off, putting off um, growing as a footballing team. And finally, I think England have reached that point. And obviously now it's paid off with a first final in 55 years. So let's have a word for Denmark before we go to a break. On the first match day, on the very first podcast we did in terms of match days here, when um, after the Italy game against Turkey... And previewing Denmark's first game against Finland, I called for a little bit of love for Denmark. Of course, we we were never to expect what happened against Finland, but they have rebounded so, so well. They eschewed that emotion that was carrying over from the Finland game and indeed from the Belgium game, which is why on podcasts I've been trying to sort of draw a line in the sand between those two games and the rest of the tournament, where they came out of their shell out and played cold football, what they would have done regardless of the Christian Eriksen situation. The moment of the tournament, probably outside of England, outside of the England bubble, comes from Andreas Christensen and that goal against Russia, the catharsis that came from that. Even as a a neutral watching, it, it was incredible to watch and emotional in and of itself and obviously getting the 4-1 win against Russia, slapping Wales by four goals potentially might shouldn't have really been four, but Still, it was a fantastic performance and thoroughly deserved to get through. Showed another side to themselves in the quarterfinal where they dug in against Czech Republic when they went 2-0 up and had to had to play out in the rest of the game and fully deserved to be in the semis. There probably wouldn't have been arguments from anybody had they reached the final here, won on penalties perhaps, nicked the goal in the uh, in extra time before, before Kane scored the penalty here. They've got a tight unit of players, Kasper Schmeichel in goal, a good spine, Simon Kerr, Andreas Christensen at the back, Thomas Delaney, Pierre Emil Hoiberg through the middle, and that's you know not even regarding the flair players. You've got Damsgaard, who's extremely dangerous around the box and firing goals in outside the box. He's been absolutely incredible, picking up these little spaces as a a roaming number ten. You've got Joachim Myler and Strigel Larsson, who have been absolutely superb on the. On the on the wing back roles, and it goes to show that Denmark tactically are getting there. With you know they they set out to be a four three three at the start of the tournament, changed to a three four three and been absolutely superb. 
Kasper Dahlberg coming to his own with the knockout stage goals. Hoiberg's been creatively fantastic. Delaney's a, a rock in the midfield, the back three, obviously. Simon Kier there is... What a man. Just, yeah. <laughs> Denmark, in a way, they remind me of England 2018. They were shattered like physically, obviously emotionally. They went down, they went up in the semi-final thanks to a free kick and obviously by the extra time were flagging and lost out in extra time 2-1. The similarities are there a little bit. Um, they're all heroes for making a semi-final. All heroes on the football pitch, some heroes for saving a man's life and a friend's life and will go down as one of the better teams at this tournament and should be remembered when we think of Euro 2020. Definitely at the forefront of our minds should be Denmark. After this short break, we'll take a look at the 2021 Trivial Teaser and of course previewing a major tournament final which features England. Welcome back. Well done to the following Alice, Jake, George and James for getting Marcel Sabitzer correct. Of course, Sabitzer was a midfielder who played underneath Franco Foda and Julian Nagelsmann and from then on in there was only really one option, wasn't there? Silly me. So I'm going to try and make it a little bit harder today, but probably not. Um, I am a central midfielder today. I've been managed by David Moyes. I've been managed by Manuel Pellegrini. Some of my teammates have been Jack Grealish, Carlos Sanchez, Robert Snodgrass, Lucas Fabianski and Declan Rice. Who could I be? I'm a central midfielder. I've played underneath David Moyes, Manuel Pellegrini and I've played alongside Jack Grealish, Carlos Sanchez, Robert Snodgrass, Lucas Fabianski and Declan Rice. Or as he's going to be known after Sunday, Sir Declan Rice. And if you think you know the answer... Tweet me at what if underscore YouTube, I will reveal the answer tomorrow where we're doing a Euro Rewind and a Rewind that I've already recorded. So if you get that correct answer of the midfield, I'm sorry, I won't be able to shout you out because I've recorded them in advance. I apologise. So after this short break, we'll preview the final Italy versus England. Sunday, July the 11th, Wembley Stadium, 60,000 people Italy in one corner under Roberto Mancini England in the other under Sir Gareth Southgate so how will how will Italy line up how will they win the match well they're fairly stringent in their 4-3-3 they will never revert to anything other than that Mancini in all of his games apart from one has played a 4-3-3 Emerson Palmieri will retain that left back role and he will be he will be the key to the result in this game, I believe. I can see Italy dropping deep, as they did against Spain, to seed possession, see what England can do, because we all know their, their uh, flurries on the counter-attack. That's where their goal came from against Spain, with Chiesa doing the running. He's incredibly dangerous. He's probably the player from an England perspective I'd be more fearful of than any other, really. Insignia and Emerson just don't have that connection that Spinazzola and Insigne do which is why I'm probably ruling out Insigne to be Italy's main danger threat in this game which is um, not to discredit him but with Spinazzola and Insigne working in tandem I'd be much more fearful from an England perspective. Federico Chiesa on the other hand you've got to be fearful of him he pops up on the left pops up on the right and his pace his tireless running against Luke Shaw Harry Maguire in that left half uh, right half space rather is something I'm 
chiefly worried about in this game, going into this game. Emerson, on the other hand, on the other flank, he doesn't quite know when to do his uh, attacking runs, his defensive runs, which could offer England a switch back to a 3-4-3, but I think the time has gone for that now from a Gareth Southgate England perspective, tactically at least. It will matter, um, Emerson, if he continues to... um, not be as fluid with his running in the entire system and the entire machine that Italy are because we'll see Insigne might see him drift out wide a bit more to uh, maintain that whip for Italy of course he's better narrow but those are the sacrifices you have to make when um, going into a game with where one of your probably has to be one of their more important players Leonardo Spinazzo that he's, is out for the rest of the tournament and I think we might see we'll definitely see something that, bit different from Mancini, might tweak it there on the left-hand side, so Insigne is a lot wider and it doesn't give Emerson enough, um, as much onus on getting forward and having to time his runs as much, because Insigne will be already out there. Of course, Verratti will be on that left-hand side of midfield, probably controlling the game if Italy do, do not cede possession to England. And I think England with the possession like that, I think it suits Italy immeasurably, because if they get if Italy have the ball, which is their want, and that's what that's the, their default setting of this team with this high-pressing team, they will get caught by Sterling, by Asaka, by Sancho if he plays from out wide. And I think that is going to be detrimental to Italy in the long run in this game. And that's probably how they lose it. Kane, as we know, is playing a nine and a half, a ten, whatever you want to call it. He's dropping deep. He's a deep line forward. That's what he is. If you're playing football manager, that's exactly what it'd be. And this is how England win this game, I think. Pack out the midfield, double up on Jorginho. Mount, he will run forever. Phillips will run forever. Phillips targeting Marco Verratti to continue his runs. Declan Rice, who naturally drops deeper, get him on Barella. And because Barella likes to go forward a lot more than Verratti. And in that is the perfect midfield battle. Obviously Kane and Mount doubling up on Jorginho, he makes Italy tick. He's their most important player. And Kane dropping deep to occupy them little spaces. We've obviously seen Danny Olmo. He's laid out the blueprint for England and for Gareth Southgate here. He will have already watched the Italy-Spain game numerous times. I've no doubt about that ahead of the game on Sunday. And that is the little blueprint. Maybe you have Saka, maybe you have Sancho. It's very dependent on how they want to attack this. If they think Italy are going to drop off, they'll have Sancho play on the right wing. If they think they're going to come on to England, they'll have Saka because he can do them with his running in behind Sterling as well. They can also, obviously both of them can drift in centrally. Sterling does it a lot more so than uh, Saka really. And I think Sterling occupying similar spaces to Kane in amongst Jorginho, slightly in behind him. I think that'll be where England win this battle, win this game. Of course, both of England's goals in this semi-final come from the right-hand side and from Saka, really. He's running and I think they'll be similar. The sort of similar chances we see in Italy in the semi-final. They give up a ton of chances down that left-hand side. Did not exploit them as nearly as much as what they should have done, in my opinion. And this is, from an Italy perspective, that's the danger zone the left-hand side, and whether or not they can pack out the midfield, overrun the midfield, get Jorginho, hamper him, and those are the two 
positions where I hope, I'd hope or I expect the game to be won from an England perspective, of course. Sterling, of course, tireless. Mount, tireless. Saka will be tireless. Kane, probably tired, but he's getting he's getting up to speed, I think, which is uh, some achievement for a man who we all said in the group stages was leggy, couldn't finish, should be swapped out for Calvert-Lewin. Some of us, anyway. Some of us stuck by him. So what will be different for England between last night and Sunday? Well, both teams in this match will play a 4-3-3, which, of course, leaves that tantalising midfield proposition there. And it will probably regress into a midfield battle if England choose to flood the midfield with Kane dropping deep inside forwards pushing on. We all know how um, Di Lorenzo likes to tuck in to form a three in possession. And that just gives Luke Shaw all the invitation he would want from a attacking point of view to overlap. Knowing that Chiesa and Brella probably will combine to similar effect to Sterling and Shaw going the other way. Shaw on the overlap, we all know his danger. Um, we've seen him in the Ukraine game, which is his best England game um, by some streak. And I think that could be an avenue for attack as well. The All the cards are there for England to go and win this game. Likewise for Italy, Chiesa and Barella combining on that right-hand side is probably their biggest threat. Obviously, we know Verratti will dictate the tempo immobile. I think... I think between them, Walker, Stones and Maguire can get a handle on him. Walker versus Insigne is a, a pacey battle if ever I've seen one, which will be fantastic to watch. And it'll just be a great game, won't it? I'm fully, fully ready. But at the same time, we'll never be ready for this. <laughs> so let's uh, run down our, or my uh, predicted lineup. So in goal, we've got Donnarumma and Jordan Pickford. And now both of them, I think, faultless up until the semi-final, both of them really uh, distribution from Pickford last night was in the first half shocking I, which is fine he's, gonna, he's doubtlessly going to be nervous and it was a huge occasion I think he got he grew into the game as a second half one as much as a goalkeeper can grow into a game but I just think he looked a slightly a little bit shaky Donnarumma as well we seem to forget he's been around for ages he's made 300 appearances almost but he's 22 and he was clearly quite nervous in that semi-final as well it, a lot of the Italy players were slightly nervous in that semi-final, less so England though last night, which could be a whole nother thing on the, in the vow, but I'm not going to go into intangibles like that. So as we know, as we know, the back four will be, is fairly predictable. Di Lorenzo, Benucci, Chiellini, Emerson for Italy, Walker, Stones, Maguire, Shaw for England, and Di Lorenzo will tuck in. Emerson will, depending on if he gets his runs right, if he times them right, will be either a flat back four or will be that three tucking in for Italy, which might mean Southgate goes to a three four three if he if he thinks that if he's confident that Emerson will bomb on and allow Trippier or Walker to attack the spaces left in behind by Emerson. Alternatively though, I would probably go for a Bukayo Saka in that wing role, but we'll talk about that anyway. So the midfield three again picks itself. Jorginho always plays if he's uh, available. Marco Verratti, likewise. Nicolo Brella, slight question marks on, but I think he's earned enough to start, definitely. And he's linking up with Chiesa in that sort of right-hand channel, which I think that's why he plays in this um, Italy midfield. Alternatively for England, Rice Phillips, definitely going to play. Mason Mount again. Mason Mount will be key for England. He goes under the radar. A lot of people wonder why he plays, but last night I thought he was great. He does, he does sort of like 
before we started to praise defensive midfielders, Mount does that but from a number 10 position, which is quite fantastic, really. <laughs> and um, he did good stuff last night as well. And I think he can nullify Jorginho. Whether or not it matters that they both play for Chelsea and quote-unquote know each other, I don't think that really matters too well. But he, he will know, just like Rice and Phillips will know Jorginho's game and know how he dictates Italy, so does Verratti. And all three of them, I think... We'll have enough. The only th- the only problem I have really from an England perspective is Barella and Chiesa on that right-hand side. And Chiesa will be on the right, Insignia on the left. Immobile through the middle. Immobile is sort of, his form's dripping in and out, but you can never, ever discount him. Although I do think that Stones and Maguire might have a little bit too much for him, but he's not, he's not the focal point for this team going forward. I think it is more Chiesa and Insignia. And for England, obviously Kane starts, obviously Sterling starts. They should both be knighted after this, as far as I'm concerned. And the only question Matt really has has been throughout the entire tournament has been right wing. And now, as I say, if you want the runners in behind, you want Bukayo Saka, if you are Phil Foden, alternatively. But I don't think, I think Foden comes off the bench. I think Grealish comes off the bench as well. Sancho, I think he's there if he he's there or if he comes on, if Gareth Southgate identifies that the method in which Italy are going to play. Obviously, up until up until the semi-final on Tuesday, Italy were very on the front foot. They were very attacking, very high energy, high pressing. Obviously, as a tournament wears on and after the season that we've all had, or a season rather that the players have had running, and uh, they're less likely to do that. And these scenes there, obviously, Spain are always going to have the lion's share of the ball. And maybe the three lions will have the lion's share of the ball, in which case, I think... Sancho could be the man there. Or to alternatively, Grealish um, to cause some havoc down that left side and still move over. But I think he, I think it's going to be an unchanged lineup from Southgate from England, and it just proves to be one hell of an occasion. This is quite literally a once in a lifetime opportunity. Hopefully, well, from an England perspective, you hope that this sort of thing isn't isn't as once in a lifetime as it is now. We hope this is the beginning of something. Obviously, the Qatar World Cup in 16 months, 17 months, will be that next step as well. It isn't. I don't think this is the type of team on paper that will go on one of these Spain, France, West Germany dominations worldwide, winning back-to-back titles. But just to get to a final, it's a new frontier. And aside from Benucci and Chiellini, a new frontier for Italy as well let's not forget all of these players or a lot of the players have played Champions League football they've played football at the highest level but there's something about getting to an international tournament final because they come around only ever every two years every four years Italy haven't been at a major tournament final since 2012 England obviously 1966 but in terms of in terms of volume of knockout stage games this England team have probably got the edge Bonucci and Keeling obviously the mainstays there but aside from that I think only really Verratti played in the Euro 2016 tournament maybe Immobile Insigne might have done I'm not entirely sure but in terms of England the core is there from 2018 Pickford, Walker, Stones, Maguire Kane, Sterling is still there Nerves, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. 2018 semi-final, it, it pales into comparison when you consider a final, especially at home. I don't think home advantage matters t- 
too much in this situation because home advantage can just as well be a disadvantage when the stakes are so high, when the emotions are so high, when a nation has waited so long. I don't think home advantage matters as much. As soon as that Italian national anthem gets belted out, hopefully the English fans don't boo it this time. Um, as soon as that Italian national anthem gets blared out and you, even as an English person, you've got to have goosebumps on the back of your neck listening to that. The stage will be set and there will be nerves. There will be the unknown for all but the two players, Benucci and Chiellini there. And it will be an occasion rather than a football match. And let's hope that the all 22 players and the, the 10 or 12 who come on if it goes to extra time don't treat it like an occasion, treat it like a football match. And I think it will be a highly tactical battle. It will be a 1-0, a 1-1, a 2-1. won't be a free-flowing high quality football match that we uh, we want to see because it is a final it's going to be nervy it's going to be touchy and it's going to be something that we have never experienced we've had Champions League finals for our clubs if you support a big club we've had FA Cup finals Premier League winners medals this is a completely different sphere different level different universe especially for English fans <laughs> because we have waited so long and until Tomorrow, well, we've got a couple of re- we've got three rewinds coming up: 2012, 2016, 2021 as well. Should be a good one, and um, obviously the final on Monday. We'll be covering that. Until then, see there, and it is finally, finally coming home, isn't it? Sports Social Podcast Network.